Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. There's a non-denominational retreat weekend at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida. This will be a time of support and renewal for parents and grandparents on the journey of parental alienation. Standing strong in resilience, paving the way for good health and a great future. This will take place April 22nd through the 24th at the Resolution Center. And I will have all the details in the podcast notes. I have a return guest. I have Dr. Sam Sugar back on. He was on first season three, episode 33, and again, season three, episode 39. He's a medical doctor and founder, president of Americans Against Abusive Probate Guardianship. This is an organization designed to help expose the corruption of this nation's guardianship systems. And I will have that website in the podcast notes. And we're going to talk about a very interesting case where an 18-year-old was abducted out of his high school. And there were reasons for that. So I welcome you to the show, Dr. Sam Sugar. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to have you on or back on. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) So this kid was 18, or he had a few months to graduate. He was going to graduate soon. Well, the story, as recounted uh, to me on several occasions by his poor mother, um, goes like this. The background is that in the state of Florida, there is a fund uh, that is designed to take care of the needs of children born with birth defects that will hamper their uh, life. And these the, these this, this fund is funded by contributions from every single doctor in the state of Florida, even though I've never delivered a baby since internship. Um, but all of us are forced to pay, and it really, it's, it's a good thing, um, a certain amount of money every year to this fund, which is now a multi-billion dollar fund. It's designed to give uh, money to the families of, of children born this way who will need help for the rest of their lives. So it is a very, very large target for people who are kind of mercenary in this area, guardians and lawyers. And this story um, involves a, a young boy who was born blind for one reason or another, although he had some perception of light and could get around with assistance, um, he was doing exceptionally well. He was a very good student, very popular, um, did everything a normal 18-year-old would do with some assistance, but primarily with the love and attention and dedication and devotion of his mother, he was getting along just fine, and the, the mother had the funds to make sure that his life would not be uh, hampered by his disability. Mm-hmm. Well, on his 18th birthday, this young man was in school and was literally kidnapped out of his school by a guardian with court orders. And once that was uh, once that occurred he was never to this day his mother has no idea where he is 
um, of course, the money that the mother was controlling to take care of this boy's life was confiscated by the guardian in the court, leaving this poor mother, Patty was her name, is her name, absolutely devastated for the rest of her life. She has no idea where her son is. And when I heard this story the first time, it's got to be seven or eight years ago, I could not believe it. This is too fantastical. It can't possibly be true. Sadly, I've heard similar stories or almost identical stories over the years about this particular aspect of how the guardianship system in this state of Florida and many others just like it functions as a way for people in the elites, the insiders in the court, to find ways to take other people's assets mm -hmm. and they can do it legally and they have no fear of ever being called on, on the carpet for it. There's no fear of retribution. There's no fear of monitoring or lawsuits because everything they do is protected by the signature of an administrative equity probate court judge who approves all this stuff. And that poignant story, this tragic poignant story, is just one facet of the way equity courts in the United States prey on anyone with assets. It, it's truly an amazing and terrifying situation, whether you're young or old, whether you're slightly disabled or completely disabled, whether you're capacitated or maybe a little incapacitated, the risk of falling into this bizarro world of probate equity it is just too high to tolerate. And as I've mentioned to you before, I do not believe that this system is appropriate for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I think it's an anachronism. And although I'm very happy to say that some legislators and judges and some elites are waking up to the fact that this is a horrific problem and a very badly dysfunctional system, I am not of the opinion that legislation can fix it. And mm -hmm. I am of the opinion that the entire concept needs to be reimagined. Um, this might have worked in 16th century England where it was originated, but it should not be the threat that it is in 21st century America. And we're left wondering how is this, well, he's probably about um, 25. 25, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like how is he, no one knows how he's doing. Or functioning or no anything. he's a ghost mm -hmm. this is and and that's just another aspect of this uh, tearing him away from his mother so that they can put him in a guardianship is one thing to get their money to get their money from him but uh isolating him not only from his mother but from all of his friends all of his colleagues i can only imagine the toll that this has taken on that young man um he is a victim of the system and there's no one to help him. There's no one to find, there's no way to find him. And um, any parent who's listening to this can only begin to imagine the terror 
of having your beloved child, disabled or not, having your beloved child just disappeared from you into the wind mm -hmm. by a court system that's supposed to protect him. And of course, this is all dressed up as it's in his best interests, which is the biggest lie of all. I think a lot of parents are seeing that even in uh, custody dispute cases. It's just thrown around completely. Well, if we transition to divorce and family court matters, at which you're probably more of an expert than I am, but I have written about it, and it's a very eerily similar situation. Again, Divorce and family courts are the two other equity courts, meaning there are no juries and no necessarily uh, particular orders. There's, there's no uh, rules of evidence that necessarily are followed. And the most important part is there are no juries. Mm -hmm. In those courts, um, in order to understand them, you have to understand who populates them. And I've written about this before. And in probate court, court of guardianship court, the, prim the primary actors are the lawyers, the guardians and the judge and the litigants. But it's very different in divorce and family. In divorce and family, you have your guardians, you have, excuse me, you have guardians and something called guardians ad litem, which are mm -hmm. not guardians. You have social workers, psychologists, custody evaluators, mediators, and the number of agencies that are involved are, are much larger as well, including DCF and CPS, foster homes, adoption agency, independent treatment centers. And to complicate matters worse, it is not just the assets of the family or even the child, of course, but there is enormous amounts of money that flow through these other equity courts in the form of Title IV-D, Title mm -hmm. V-E, and grants for substance abuse and mental health administration. We're not talking about thousands or millions of dollars. We're talking about billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And the insiders, the elites in that system profit from every level of it. The government through the Title IV, which is a social security program, has created a system that punishes parents, encourages them, encourages them not to be married, and takes these children away from both parents, gets them involved in these so-called drug treatment centers where they all wind up in terrible situations, not all, I shouldn't say that, where so many of them wind up either drug addicted, dependent, on welfare, not exactly what any parent would want for their kid. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the same judges actually who rotate through these, through these different courts. And it's just another example of how in, in the United States, how courts have evolved to be such money sources, both mm -hmm. coming in and going out. Federal dollars are what supports this system. And the beneficiaries of the system, of course, it's supposed to be the kids. The beneficiaries of the system are the insiders who own many of these 
12, I believe it's 12,000 federally funded mental health centers across the country, sometimes even owned by those very judges, that deal with enormous numbers of cases of children who are um, badly damaged, not only by a bad marriage, but by the system they're thrown into. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very difficult situation. And the average man on the street or woman on the street has absolutely no idea mm-hmm. how this works, how their tax dollars are being spent. For example, they have no idea should the tragedy of divorce befall them. Mm-hmm. And I consider it a tragedy. But should it happen, most people go into that thinking, well, you know, it's a no-fault divorce and we'll be both fine and we'll just move on. But if you're the man in that situation and you are a judge to be paying child support and for whatever reason, your child support payments don't come in on time because they don't go to the child, they go to the (laughs) state. The state becomes the intermediary between the father and the child. And if the state doesn't receive your payment in a timely fashion after a warning or two, you are arrested and put into prison, Mm -hmm. sometimes for many, many years. And if that is the most crazy thing I've ever heard, I don't know what is, Mm -hmm. especially during the pandemic, so many men wound up defaulting on their child. Uh Uh-oh, you you were involved? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's that story? Well, um, (laughs) okay, CPS got involved where they should not have. And- What a shock. (laughs) There was a lot of lies going on. So what happened was I, the long and short of it was I lost my job as a registered nurse of 22 and a half years. And then they tried to obviously make me pay child support on an imputed income that did not exist. There you go. The judge, seriously, the judge for years wasn't getting it through her head that I cannot, could not work until I was cleared of these indications, which I eventually was. But hospitals wouldn't hire me because they knew there was another child. And you know how people call in indications and allegations all the time. So my arrears were at $17,000 and she had this great idea to put me, she said, in jail for two months unless I pay $2,000. Well, here I had won in Superior Court a pension fund of $2,200 and it just was never paid. So that could have kept me out of actually it's prison, not jail. So um, she was going to put me in there for two months. I only lasted five days because they would not give me my prescribed medication, which is a human rights violation. But that's how that went down. And then after that, I had a heart attack. You know, every time I hear these stories, I get a little palpitation because it reminds me still of the ripples that uh, that I personally experienced through the probate court, mm-hmm. through that corruption. Um, and every time I talk to a victim of these equity courts, I keep asking myself the question, how on earth does this happen? 
how have we come to this point in our beautiful country, mm -hmm. in our very first world society, that we do not see the torture that we put innocent people through by criminalizing aspects of this that need not be so. There, there is an attitude, and I'm afraid uh, at this particular time in history, that attitude is becoming more and more prevalent, that more government is good for us. Mm -hmm. um, that if there's something wrong, the state or the federal government will address it and will be fine. But I personally, and this is my own opinion, I'm of the Ronald Reagan school of, of world realities. And that is when somebody tells you I'm from the government and I'm here to help you run, mm -hmm. run mm -hmm. as fast as you can, because the government is rarely the solution, but it is often the problem. Mm -hmm. And it, in the realm of equity, which again is probate, divorce, family, and used to be uh, bankruptcy, but now that's in federal court. In these state courts of equity, there are no checks and balances that work. Our government was supposed to be a series of checks and balances between the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. But the judiciary refers to itself as the only independent branch of government. And its checks and balances on itself are ludicrous and mm -hmm. essentially non-existent. Mm -hmm. They make the rules, they selectively enforce the rules and decide who should and shouldn't be prosecuted for breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate power in a free society. And unfortunately, it's been misused. Not every time, not in every court, and not in every case. But as Americans, we should not tolerate even one case like the ones we've been talking about this morning. It mm -hmm. is simply unacceptable. And what we've come to learn as advocates is that changing these longstanding habits and practices is almost impossible because they are defended by the strongest political organization in the United States, which is the bar. Mm -hmm. um, the bar exerts absolute and total control over all of these processes, whether it's with the judges, the Supreme Court, or the attorneys that are litigating. They all have the protection of, this, uh, of the bar. And they realize that the bar will, will back them up as long as they follow the cues and check all the boxes. They literally can get away with anything. And in a system that depends on the integrity of the people who are in it for money, mm -hmm. you must expect that there will be a degree of corruption. And in these situations where we're talking about the life of a child, or the life of an infirm elderly person or any person who's vulnerable. That is the time where we as Americans must insist that these courts are held to the highest scintilla of integrity mm -hmm. and they don't allow or condone any of this abuse that we see with incessant litigation, 
what you were discussing before, the potential criminalization of, um, of support payments, because they're very destructive and they benefit only the elites. Everybody else is diminished by this system. Right, because I think it's every state's different, but it could be like 66 cents on a dollar of child support payments made on the dollar go to the government and not to where they should and go. And not for the benefit of the right. individual that it was intended for. Yeah, that's nothing new. Mm -hmm. uh, big government does that. Mm -hmm. um, for every dollar, there, there's a story that goes around every legislative session, uh, both in the state and at the federal level. When you hear grandstanding politicians talk about, we need to fund program XYZ, we need to fund this foundation, we need mm -hmm. to fund this, fund this business organization. The joke is that all of the money that the federal government, that's our money, mm -hmm. goes into these programs and grants comes back to these very politicians in the form of, of campaign donations. It's mm -hmm. a vicious circle and um, the, the best example of it is in the defense industry where enormous amounts of money are spent. There's a famous story about the $5,000, I forget, $5,000 or $10,000 toilet seat that the Air Force ordered. And of course, all of these expenditures are approved by legislators who and the Defense Department contractors just turn around and recycle that money into the uh, the election fund of the legislator who approved it. It's a, it's a very perverse system and we shouldn't be tolerating it, especially on the micro level when it has such drastic deleterious effect on families and individuals in them. The attack on our American families by our own government I call it America's war on the vulnerable, is unacceptable, whether it's in divorce court or family court or probate court. What's under attack is family and family values. The destruction of the American family, which is now nearly complete, uh, the, the number of children born into single family parent homes, the number of children who are uh, addicted to uh, serious drugs, the number of children who require heavy doses of uh, psychotropic medications, the number of children who are ADHD, who are taking Ritalin or something like that. It's staggering. And from my, my perspective, a lot of it has to do with the disintegration and the devaluing of the two-parent home. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true. A divorce happens in America every 35 seconds, I believe it is now. Two years ago, it was 39 seconds. I think it's now down to 35. Mm -hmm. That's a terrifying statistic. And you begin to wonder, is it the institution of marriage that's broken? Or is it that we have become broken and no longer think we need a two-family home, a two-parent home? I don't know, but it's certainly worth discussing. Also, I've heard from other parents that when CPS uh, invades their home, they try to force the parents to get divorced. 
or you won't see your kid. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, CPS and Adult Protective Services work pretty much in the same way, although their funding is a little bit different. Uh, but for all the good that they're supposed to do, namely protecting children, and in the case of APS, adult protective services, in my experience, they do more harm than good because their analysis uh, of a situation is shoot first and ask questions later. In, in adult protective services, if an adult protective services worker makes a visit to an individual uh, where there has been a claim of abuse, neglect, or exploitation, their report, whether it's honest or not, and we're, I'm well aware of instances where APS workers have been bribed to make reports look the way they would like them to look. Um, the next thing you know, you're in court. The next thing you know, you're in the hands of these uh, probate and family court judges who, for whatever reason, whether they have inurements or not, they're in the business of making guardianships, not preventing them. They're mm -hmm. in the business of handling divorces, not fixing marriages. And mm -hmm. that's the fundamental error in our thinking. And the man on the street, the woman on the street, has no idea of the bizarro world mm -hmm. that you enter into when you walk into these courtrooms. Mm -hmm. It is not at all what you see on television. It is not at all what you were taught in high school. Mm -hmm. And it is not at all like criminal or civil courts. It's a different world. And they're in the business to do business. It is a multi-billion dollar business in just about every state. And it employs a lot of court personnel, a lot. So there's no reason why it shouldn't do a much better job. And the fact that it doesn't, and the fact that there are so many horrific cases coming out of these courts makes you wonder what it will take to fix this problem. And I don't have that answer. Mm -mm. A lot of, you know, a lot of people I've talked to, no one has the answer. We, I, and parents want it, this fixed other than abolish it. But I don't know how that's going to happen. Well, um, every revolution takes time. And a lot of revolutions take place over generations. And I see my job as an advocate not to, you know, force people in the legislature to wake up and smell the coffee. My job for the last decade or so is very simple. Uncover this. Talk about it. Let people know. Educate them. Let them know the risks they have. And maybe help them try to figure out how to avoid falling into these situations. Mm -hmm. I know we had talked last time that even if you have a will, they can just disregard that. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and frankly, in the field that I'm most interested in, which is guardianship abuse, one of the most egregious complaints 
from victims of guardianship abuse and exploitation is something that occurs very early on in the judicial process. Just to review, the way guardianships get started is that there is an allegation, an unsworn allegation, usually by a lawyer, in front of a probate equity administrative court judge that says something like, Your Honor, there's an individual in our community in your jurisdiction that may be abused, neglected, and exploited. Mm -hmm. When that happens, the judge has a reason to push the button on an ETG, an emergency temporary guardianship, which is a misnomer anyhow, because they're not really emergencies and they're anything but temporary. Um, and what happens next within a very short period of time while the allegedly incapacitated person is supposedly being thoroughly examined, which never happens, mm -hmm. um, is the issue of whether they have advanced directives. Now, in every case that I'm aware of, with only a couple of exceptions, in every abusive case, the allegedly incapacitated person had advanced directives. They spent the money, they hired uh, an estate lawyer, to lay out their plans for what would happen if and when they ever needed help, meaning they were incapacitated. And those documents included a durable power of attorney, a healthcare power of attorney, and a will. You write those so that when the day comes when you need them, they will be adhered to and the court will recognize them and of course do exactly what you've written because who is in a better position to determine what your best interests are than yourself? Mm -hmm. So you spend thousands of dollars to write these documents and ultimately they come to the probate court where they are challenged. And the greatest trick that the probate litigator has is to claim that these documents written years before when there was no question of incapacity because you can't write these if you are already incapacitated mm -hmm. but they claim oh your honor no 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 you, you can't allow those because they were written under undue influence and that's a phrase we should all be aware of because it is a trick of the trade to allow the judge to look at these advanced directives and negate them and nullify them saying, well, how do I know when these were written that the person who may have, we're thinking is abusing this person, usually a child, an adult mm -hmm. child of an elderly person, didn't exert undue influence on this now incapacitated person. And so how can we trust these and no, I'm going to throw them out. We're going to start all over again. And I, the judge, will determine what's in the best interests of the ward. Now, if you're paying attention, you're, the hair on your arm should start to rise up. That is in itself an enormous abuse of power. Mm -hmm. Because the only person who can determine what is actually in your best interest is you. 
because you have life experience. You know the nuances of your life. You know your religious preferences. You know where you want to be buried. You know who you want to take care of you. You know what hospital and doctor you want to use. You know all of these things. And you don't make it a secret. You made it clear in your documents that this is the way you want it done. But because of that trick, and I've seen it so many times, and there are others that wind up in the same situation for the ward, advanced directives are nullified or ignored or even not presented. There's another interesting trick that you can delay the presentation of the advanced directives until after all is said and done and they don't mean anything anymore. So for the uninitiated who's listening to this, you may think that your advanced directives, and if you don't have them, you should at a very minimum, you may think that they're just fine. And you know what? You're right. They are fine unless they are challenged because the person who wrote those advanced directives, an estate lawyer, if you ask them this question, the question being, will you litigate for me to enforce these advanced directives if they are challenged? The answer he will give you is no, I will not. I'm not a probate litigator. You'll have to hire a probate litigator. And of course, once you're in that situation as an alleged ward, you can't hire anybody. The court takes away your right to hire an attorney as well as to vote and live where you want and associate with you. So you're completely vulnerable. And the only people who can fight for you are usually the very people who are accused of abusing you. And I've coined a term for them. They're the patsies, the probate patsies because they are the one who ones who naively believe that, oh, justice will be meted out, and I think the system is good, and mm -hmm. if I only tell the judge what actually happened, we can stop all this terrible stuff. And that's why they're patsies. Mm -hmm. They are taken advantage of, they are easily, easily deluded by their own biases and beliefs, but they have no idea of the war that they are about to enter into, which will see them lose their beloved parent, be isolated from them, go broke hiring lawyer after lawyer after lawyer who cannot pierce this system. And they will watch helplessly as their loved one is sucked into this dysfunctional dystopic guardianship machine. They enter the machine as a living, breathing, human being with a vulnerability or a disability or some form of incapacity. And in this machine, which grinds them up, there is an extraction of all their wealth. There is an extraction of all their power. And at the end of the machine's process comes out a corpse. And that's the best way to visualize the guardianship system. It's designed for you not to be able to get out. Every case is designed to create, not prevent the guardianship. And for the patsies who try their very best, spend their life savings to save a loved one, uh, just as is the case right now with Peter Max in New York, where his daughter Libra is desperately trying to get Peter Max, the very famous pop artist, out of a terribly abusive guardianship. She's hired the best lawyers in the country, including the lawyer that helped get uh, 
Britney Spears out, Matthew Rosengart, is having no luck whatsoever. And um, Nichelle Nichols, the uh, Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek, uh, for mm -hmm. those of us of a certain age, is having terrible trouble trying to get out of her guardianship. Even Wendy Williams now, who may well be a little incapacitated, but it was her bank that threw her into this guardianship mess. That's another discussion too, because banks are incentivized to be on the lookout for possible incapacity. It's another entry door into this dystopic, dysfunctional guardianship machine. And it is tragic because we're destroying people for an opportunity to steal their money. Because if you're a professional guardian, you're not in it because you're a, a, a big charity person. You're in it because that's how you make your money. And even family guardians, which are the most common guardians, who make mistakes and wind up in guardianship battles out of naivety, stupidity, or maybe even they're criminals, have no idea the trouble that they're getting into and the lifelong damage done to their, not just their money, but their hearts and their souls and their minds. Once you've been through this on a personal level, and you can relate to this as well, you're never the same, mm -mm. never. When these courts of equity touch you, rather than doing something to bring you equity or uh, resolve a problem with equity, meaning fairness, these courts and the lawyers and guardianship insiders that inhabit them create far more problems than they ever solve. And their solution is always heavy handed and intended to last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really quite remarkable. And when you step back from it and see the terrible damage, the wreckage of lives and families that goes on for generations, because this truly is an intergenerational thing, the ripples from this, this uh, throwing this rock in that ocean go on forever. Everybody in the family, whether they're the ones who wanted guardianship or the ones who didn't, everybody who's associated with that ward is affected, some much more than others. And for the people closest, the people who fought against the guardianship, their lives are ruined. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded just a couple of weeks ago about the awful case of a guardian named Linrod Douglas in Florida, who had a bunch of wards and complaints about him date back a decade or more. He stole only about a half million dollars, uh, but he did it from a bunch of different families, so there were many, many victims. The complaints about him were horrible, and they were ignored mm -hmm. repeatedly. And the result of that ultimately was with some new uh, new blood in the OPPG, the Office of Public and Professional Guardianship, and with real persistence on the part of some of the family members, this man was brought to justice and he is now serving 10 years, which is not enough. Mm -hmm. But he wound up destroying the lives of dozens of families and, and, and being very much a big part in the death of a number of the people he was in charge of. It is a, a very difficult lesson about the dangers of the power 
over other people when you're a guardian. And as we talked before, these guardians are not even um, adequately educated to do so. Doesn't take much to be a guardian, just a high school diploma. Yeah, and a couple of other criteria, but you're right. One of my favorite uh, little stories is uh, earlier on in my advocacy, I started researching the backgrounds of a number of prominent guardians, especially those who were presidents of uh, guardianship associations or very active in them. And I will never forget the, um, the research I did into one particular guardian who was very prominent at the time, the president of her local guardianship association. And her stated profession was dog walker. Mm -hmm. She had graduated high school. She did not have a criminal record. She had never committed a felony. She did take a rinky-dink 40-hour, supposedly, course. So she qualified to be a guardian. And for some reason, uh, judges depended on her to do the work that they assigned to her in a good way. And she got lots and lots of guardianships. But complaints about her went back for years and years. So the system is not populated by the brightest bulbs in the back, mm -hmm. to be kind. Um, and they are actually the puppets. The guardians don't make all the money in guardianship, although they make much more than they could have uh, being a dog walker. Mm -hmm. Because guardians can charge between $65 and $85 an hour now, and I think that's going up, for doing anything remotely connected to the ward, like thinking about them. And they can do it for any number of hours that they bill because the judge really doesn't care, never really scrutinizes the hours, doesn't have time or the will to do it. So a guardian with just a handful, uh, you know, a professional guardian in Florida means you have three cases. So a professional guardian with just five or six cases can easily make a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year, because every time you open the the ward's mail or make a phone call to a lawyer or to a provider or whatever, anything you can imagine, you can bill for. But the real money is made by the lawyers. Mm -hmm. The real money comes in the form of hourly legal fees, which now are approaching $1,000 an hour. And when you imagine, and I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast, when you imagine a deposition or in discovery in which there are half a dozen lawyers from all sides, a paralegal, a court reporter, and the lawyers are all billing by the minute a deposition, which can last for three or four days sometimes, can cost anywhere between $10,000 and $50,000 just for a deposition. Mm -hmm. And that goes on constantly. It's the legal churning that makes this so profitable because the court not only enables it, it demands it. Mm -hmm. So to the naive individual who's listening to this, my best advice is, do everything you can possibly do to avoid ever stepping into divorce court, family court, or probate court. Mm -hmm. They're not kind places. Beware all ye who enter. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been 
um, directing my efforts to lately, and that is devising ways to avoid probate guardianship, which I must admit is sometimes impossible when there are very determined people who absolutely insist on putting someone into a guardianship. If the judge is in the business of creating guardianships, you will be in a guardianship and getting out is almost impossible. But not all guardianship judges are like that. There are some excellent judges that I've met um, and I have a relationship with and whom I respect greatly. There are some very good people in the investigative area and the administrative area, but they're overwhelmed by the sheer number of guardianships in the state, which as I've mentioned before, nobody really knows the number yet, but a guess is between 50 and 75,000 in Florida, between one and a half and three and a half million across the country. Um, that's a lot of people and a lot of money. And that system is designed to extract that money and redirect it into the pockets of the court insiders. So again, to the naive individual who has never experienced this, believe me, you don't want to have anything to do with these courts, simply because if for no other reason, they're so unpredictable. Mm -hmm. It just, it depends on one person's point of view, that is the judge, and how he feels that day, who's in his court that day, mm -hmm. whether he's feeling charitable or benevolent or angry or constipated or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, it is too unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And so I've been directing my efforts lately and uh, particular on advanced directives. Advanced directives, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, are the critical documents designed to prevent guardianships. That's what they're for. It's to allow you to direct your care and the care of your money and estate when you no longer can. Your will tells the court and the court is pretty much constrained from deviating from it. Your will is for after you die. Mm -hmm. But before you die, your advanced directives are supposed to be how things are handled by your choice. Mm -hmm. Now, let's assume that an advanced directive is the most effective way to avoid a guardianship. What, knowing well that it may not work. Because as I told you before, the attorneys who litigate this stuff are really smart. They've been at it a long time. And if they really want to abrogate your advanced directives, it's very easy with a complicit judge. It's nothing to it. But assuming that you're in a district that has good judges and, and at least somewhat honest lawyers, your advanced directives are the best way now to legally prevent a guardianship. Of course, preventing the situation that led to the allegations of abuse is the best way, which means you have to solve your family disputes. But in my experience, um, that sounds nice, but family disputes go back all the way to childhood, usually. One child doesn't feel loved as much as another sibling rivalry, parents choosing special children and favorites, those deep, deep scars in families don't heal. Mm -hmm. 
And when one family member in, a, in the circle of trust of an elder, of a parent or a grandparent, when one family member in that circle of trust decides that they're not being treated fairly or that they just simply want their inheritance early, that's how these things start. Mm-hmm. But telling people to fix their family problems is, is a nostrum. I wish it were true. I wish, I wish it were pro- possible, but in my experience, it's very difficult. So, other than leaving the country when the threat comes, because that's about the only thing that ever works, mm-hmm. and it has its own series of pitfalls and, and problems, and they're serious, having a really good set of advanced directives, not just the standard stuff that any street lawyer will do for you. Um, is probably one of the best ways to do whatever you can in advance to never get into these situations. And on our website, which is www.aaapg.net, I've posted, and again, here's my disclaimer, Dr. Sam Sugar is not an attorney and I do not and cannot give legal advice. Nothing I'm about to say should be construed as legal advice. However, Mm -hmm. As general advice to individuals who are considering consulting with an attorney to draw up the best possible advanced directives, I've made some suggestions in a template. Um, And some of those suggestions are ones that would not normally be uh, included in your advanced directives. For, For example, I'll just read one. I expressly disqualify and prohibit under any circumstances the appointment of any professional guardian, whether temporary or otherwise, as as defined in our Florida statutes, or any successor statute by any court of proper jurisdiction over my person or my property at any time for any reason. Any possible professional guardian cannot be in my interests. Now, you will not find that. If if you look at your own advanced Mm -hmm. directives, you will not find that. But if this issue that we've been discussing now in these three podcasts has alerted you to the danger and the risk of being involved in a guardianship battle, Mm -hmm. you may want to talk to your lawyer about putting something like that in your advanced directives. I'll read another one. I hereby assert and confirm that I am fully capacitated and that there have been and are no assertions to the contrary by any party. Further, I assert that there has been no exertion of undue influence upon myself from any party in the preparation of this document. And you can understand now that we've had this discussion why that needs to be in here. It's kind of like attacking the problem before it, it spouts. I mean, the seeds are there. You want to cut it off, cut it off at the ground level before it even starts. So I've created this as a suggestion for people to discuss with their attorneys who might have a concern that because of a family dispute or a contractual dispute, because these guardianships can happen. Although although the elites in the industry like to say that families are the biggest cause of guardianships, I dispute that. And I would say that courts are the biggest and only cause of guardianships. However, Mm -hmm. family members, family members writ large, whether it's a second cousin or a third niece, 
are often the stimulus for the beginning of guardianship procedures. procedures. So awareness, concern, preparation, like anything else, whether you're, a, you're an athlete uh, about to go into the World Series, you have to be alert, you have to be aware, you have to prepare, you have to practice, and then you're ready to play the game if the game gets, if there isn't a baseball strike. <laughs> and of course, thank God there isn't. But um, you have to be prepared for all kinds of things in life because you're never going to be ready for this disaster. And even if you are educated, you still won't be ready for it, but the best you can to try to prevent it from ever happening. And that's still my best advice. Once these guardianships, once these divorce and family courts uh, cases get started, they just go on forever. The mm -hmm. damage, the destruction, the desolation, the injury, the, the just misery. Mm -hmm. that they create for everyone but the court insiders is never ending. And any intelligent person should really take the time to assess their situation, whether it's their marriage or their divorce, whether it's their parent or loved one who might wind up sucking the entire family into one of these meat grinders of a legal proceeding that can go on certainly for the ward's lifetime, maybe for the child's lifetime, intergenerationally when it comes to all of these things, the ripples go on forever. And my best advice, again, I'll, I think this is the fourth time I've said it, but I mean it, do everything you can to avoid these things, everything you can, whether it's legalistically or trying to solve problems before they become disasters. And I would add one more thing, and it applies to all of these equity courts. Do not hire lawyers to solve your family problems. Lawyers often create more problems than they solve. And remember, no matter what you're being told, a lawyer's penultimate interest is himself. There are very few lawyers practicing probate litigation who are like Mother Teresa. They are in it because it's a business for them. And while they may, they may talk a really good game and they may even mean it, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. You will be shocked, probably disappointed. As I've mentioned before, the average number of lawyers a litigant who opposes guardianship hires during the course of a guardianship is six lawyers. And that tells you a lot. So it's a complicated paradigm. Again, my, my I'll say it again. I, I seem to be repeating myself a lot today. I'll say it again. You want to do everything you can to avoid ever being in this situation. I totally thank you for coming on my show again. And I'm sure our paths will cross again. And I'm glad you drew up those templates uh, because I mean, we have advanced directives, but I think we're going to update our will. And um, not that we have millions of dollars to, that anyone would want, but I mean, it could be just someone who's done well in life. They could just go into a guardianship just to get the estate. 
Well, of course. I mean, in, in the end, abusive guardianship cases center around money. Mm-hmm. That's why there are so very few abusive public guardianships. And there are plenty of those. But we don't hear about them because there's nothing to litigate over. Mm-hmm. I will share in the little time we have remaining an interesting story about one of my colleagues who um, tells the story of an individual who was destitute and wound up in a public guardianship. That means that the state is really responsible for their welfare and public guardians are very different than professional guardians. They get paid an hour, they get paid on a salary and I have no complaints about them. I'm sure there are issues, but not from me. Well, as it turns out, this one public ward won the lottery. Mm. And he was immediately transferred from a public guardianship to a professional guardianship. Now that's an, and if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know, this is all about money. Mm-hmm. All of the probate matters are only solved because they're involved with money. And we're talking about big money, the, the earnings of a lifetime, savings, investments, homes, cars, jewelry, artwork. It's a lot. Um, and when somebody else wants what you have in America, they'll find a way to get it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I threw you off on that one, didn't I? <laughs> yes, but that was, it is the truth. Well, I, I'm I'm really grateful for the opportunity of talking to your audience. Um, I, I really do hope that none of them ever winds up in this in this meat grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they do, I hope they've learned something from the awful experiences of the thousands of cases that I have reviewed over the last ten or twelve years. And um, I wish your listeners the very best. Thank you again. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate you, Dr. Sam Sugar. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petri, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. And I may have Dr. Sam Sugar back on again and other exciting guests. Thank you again, Dr. Sam. You're welcome.